You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. I want to thank Darren for his kind introduction. I want to thank him for pointing out that I probably need to update the language on our website to not be such a downer, a little more uplifting. Maybe I should add some emojis or things like that. Um, I've never, I, I don't think I expected it to all be read out loud in a church service, but that's okay. Uh, and I won't spend a, uh, much time talking about Prepared to Answer because Darren has, has graciously introduced the ministry that I have been privileged to be leading for the past 10 years now. Um, he kind of laid it out well. Our mission is to serve the local church in areas of Christian apologetics and worldview. Our real passion is to help to train the Christian mind, to help the next generation to think like Jesus because as the Apostle Paul told us in Romans chapter 12, right, we are, find renewal through what? The transformation of our minds, right? And so um, that's, that's the mission that we serve, the part we seek to serve in uh, the gospel and uh, in serving the local church, to just become uh, yeah, a servant to the church and help uh, bring apologetics and Christian worldview formation into the toolbox of the, disi- the disciple-making work of the church. So um, that's what we seek to do. You can find us online. Our website's preparedtoanswer.org. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Prepared to Answer. And uh, enough said about that. I'll leave it there for you to explore. Uh, I do want to thank the leaders, though, for inviting me to come and uh, just open God's Word with you this morning and to enter into uh, your uh, series through the Psalms over the summer and just to get to preach God's Word as well. And it really is a, a privilege for me to be here. Uh, Darren shared a little bit. Uh, I have a, a really neat relationship with Woodside um, beyond the fact that m- most of my wife's family attends there. Um, Woodside was very much part of the formation of the ministry that I have right now. I left pastoral ministry after 11 years, just sensing God's call to, to something uh, different, uh, something to use my gifts differently to help equip the church and, and further the gospel. And there's kind of a, a period of time where I was just kind of looking for God's leading. I'd left ministry, and uh, I was an invitation to come and just speak to what was then the young, uh, I guess the young adults or young families Sunday school group, and that's where I just was able to start presenting and teaching what God had laid on my heart, and it really, really began the early formations of a vision for ministry. That's really where I am today, so it's kind of neat to continue this relationship, but now also to see how God's working in, at, uh, through Woodside to plant a church, and this is exciting. Uh, so my family and I, we worship, we're a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Exeter, uh, which is over towards Lake Huron. Uh, we've been there for t- over 20 years now. Um, but a year ago, our church just decided to plant a church about 10 minutes north in the village of Hensel. And so I know from experience on two sides, as a sending church, it's, it's a very faith-stretching exercise because you're letting go a whole bunch of people you love and who you know, you've, you've been used to having as part of the... And, and they're going off to do something brand new. And I know for those of you who've gone, it's, uh, it's a step of faith also because God's calling you to do something you haven't done before. I don't know about you, but I like to just keep doing the same old thing because that's comfortable, right? But just, uh, just the very, I think, the very process, to say nothing of, I think, God's greater mission and purpose through churches that he plants. 
the very process of stretching ourselves to step out in faith, uh, believing that God wants to grow his church and reach people who haven't yet been reached. Uh, I just think that is such a, a faith-building exercise. So uh, I'm, I've been excited to come and visit with you. I've known about you for some time because I was chatting with Darren and Melanie about it years ago when kind of this was an idea. And I'm um, just glad to be here to see how God's at work and um, just looking forward to seeing how he'll use you to reach more lives for Christ in, uh, in this community and area. So Psalm 32, though, is what we're going to look at this morning. So uh, I'm thankful that it was read already and invite you to open your Bibles there and uh, I just want to preach the text. I just, I, I like apologetics. I like doing worldview teaching, but I love to get into God's word and just preach the text. And I'm thankful for Darcy for giving me this because it's a very preachable text. A very, it almost preaches itself. Um, this is one of probably seven uh, identified penitential psalms or psalms uh, surrounding the whole theme of repentance through the psalms that the Christian church has used uh, over, over its history. And really the, the theme around confession and repentance and blessing is one that's pulled out in this psalm, but, but there's always some, some really neat things to discover in God's word, even as we go through passages that are familiar and themes that are, may seem, as with many psalms, this is just a wonderful piece of Hebrew poetry. And it starts with a very typical Hebrew poetic form of Two parallelisms, or a parallelism, which is just two lines that have parallel ideas put side by side to set up a contrast. And that's what happens here. The psalmist begins, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose, whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So this blessed is the one, it's a parallel, two statements set up together, and there are these contrasting and parallel statements. Blessed is the one, that's just a re repetition of the phrase, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin the Lord does not count against them. It's just the same way of saying the same thing. Blessed is the one who's, who God doesn't count their sins against them. And then these final two lines, which interestingly aren't parallel, but they contrast. It's actually a positive and a negative whose sins are covered, and in the negative, in whom there is no deceit. But what this opening paragraph sets up is, in, in David's mind, or in David's words, this state of blessedness that there is for the man or the woman whose sins God doesn't count against them, who doesn't stand under the weight and the burden of guilt and conviction because of their sin guilt before a holy God. What's then interesting is in that the next two verses, verse 3 and 4, David then sets up this contrast. So verse 1 and 2 is the state of blessedness as the opening. There's the theme. But 3 and 4 then is, but now here's the opposite of that. Here's the state of unblessedness, if you will. And, and then there's these two phrases that are actually their contrasts with the negatives that, or with the two that David put up in the first section. Uh, contrasting whose sins are covered, David uses this term of whose, uh, whose hand or the Lord's hand was heavy upon me, and in whom there's no deceit, David contrasts then with when I kept silent about my sin. And we'll look at that. Here's this, here's this state of unblessedness. David says, when I kept silent, in other words, 
when there was deceit in me, when I didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away uh, through my groaning all day long, which sounds terrible enough. And then there's another parallel. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And what's interesting here I find is these two terms, my bones wasted away and my strength was sapped. Uh, and this is, I think, where, where nicely the scriptures confirm for us that God has created us spirit and flesh, that we aren't just, as our materialist world says, we're not just physical animals, nor are we, as maybe some uber-spiritualist might think, is we're just in, in, in caged spirits waiting to escape the physical. We're both. We're flesh and spirit. And there's this un, so this undeniable physical condition or connection between what happens to us spiritually and what happens to us physically. And so bones being wasted away, strength being sacked. This isn't just David talking about some kind of psychological angst he's experiencing. There's something physical going on. David can feel it in his bones, the burden of, of guilt when he kept silent. And I think we understand there's this, there's this undeniable physical connection uh, conveying these two, these two possibilities um, or these two realities. And, and when thinking about what that means, one of two possibilities could be true. First of all, it could be that God does sometimes use physical ailment to either bring us under conviction or bring us to repentance or discipline us because we're withholding sin from him. Some people say, I, I got sick, you know, I'm sick. You know, is, is my sickness, is God punishing me? My immediate answer to that is no. Because God doesn't hold our sins against He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. But it could be that God may bring illness along as a means of chastening us. And I certainly think this is, uh, this is, this is borne out in the New Testament as well. I think of the Apostle Paul, who, who talked about his own experience as someone who had been given extremely uh, uh, marvelous revelations from God. But as a means of keeping him from becoming conceited, God sent a, a, a thorn. He described it as a thorn in his flesh. We're, we're never really told what that is. But Paul experienced some kind of physical ailment that he prayed for God to deliver him from, and God refused. He said, no, you're just going to have to bear it. But God added, but my grace is sufficient, so you'll be able to bear it with my help. So, so sometimes it could be that if, if physical ailment comes into your life, it, it might be that God's trying to get your attention. Does it mean he's punishing you? I would not use those words. Could it be he's disciplining you? Yes. Not something to, to lightly dismiss. But there's one other possibility as well. It could be, no, that God's not necessarily directly punishing you. It could be, however, that God is simply allowing the natural consequence of guilt to do its work. And I, I, found, I find this very interesting. The field of psychology is 
to me interesting and problematic at the same time, but usually it's more interesting. And one thing that it does reveal to us that I think anecdotally, or at least experientially, we, we understand, that there is a clear connection between guilt and physical or psychological response. That, in fact, uh, so this was, uh, I looked up verywellmind.com, and I thought, you know, anytime you go on the internet, you have to check your sources. So, so who's behind it? And I went and looked, and there's a good list of PhDs who are behind verywell.com. So I thought, okay, I think I can share this graphic uh, on church, uh, at church on Sunday without feeling too self-conscious. But between, feel, between guilt and the expression of physical or psychological distress, this direct connection between guilt and well-being, that makes it an extraordinarily powerful force. And I can't help but think that, and I don't want to, I don't want to be simplistic in, an, in any kind of assessment of what we see happening around us in the world today, because the world is complex, and people are complex, and society is complex. But I do like to look and see what kind of developments and trends there are taking place in our world, and the one that we cannot deny is the proliferation of mental illness throughout our society. I mean, the statistics alone, the trajectory is steeply upward in terms of diagnosis, treatment. We are the most medicated generation in the world, and I'm not, and I'm not dissing medication. I mean, God gives us these things as helps, but it just seems as though, as society goes, we're a generation that needs more of these helps than ever before. And I, I often wonder why that is, and I reflect on why that may be. And I think that, in large part, I think what, what I see happening in our culture and I, is I, I think that our society or people in our culture are suffering from the disease of guilt. Guilt as an inescapable affliction because of the world we find ourselves in, a world that is without God. The secular world where God is not present or acknowledged or anything. You see, in a secular system, which is what our, our world is, a sec seculum is from the Latin word, it just means of this world. A secular system is a system of thought or a system of viewing the world that just says there is nothing beyond the physical that is, if you, were to, if you were to add up the sum total of all of reality, it would total one thing, and that's the universe. There's nothing beyond it. There's nothing outside of it. It's, it's the universe. Our existence is in a closed box. It's a closed system, and everything that exists is within it. That is the secular worldview. And, of course, our world wants to say we're very comfortable with that. That actually brings us great freedom because we're not constrained by some outside deity or divine forces imposing their will upon us. We're free to create our own blah, 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 blah. The problem is, however, especially when it comes to guilt, is that in a closed system, guilt is a consequence of offense. The guilt is simply the state of being guilty of committing some infraction or some offense against, whether it's a law or a person or whatever. The problem with living in a secular system where it's closed is that both offense 
and offended exist together in the same totality. So there are no other alternatives. Within our existence, there's either the offense or the offended. And in such a world, then, there is no grace, there's no forgiveness, there's no redemption, because you can only ever belong to one group or the other. Either you are guilty of committing the offense or you're someone who's had an offense committed against you. Therefore, within this secular system, you can only belong to one of two groups. Either you're part of the guilty group or you're part of the innocent. Either you're, part of, uh, you're the perpetrator or you're the victim. You're either part of the oppressive or you're an oppressor or you're part of the oppressed. There are no third alternatives. And we see that more and more the way our culture tends to think. And as such, repentance is not only not encouraged, it's discouraged. And it's not desired because repentance requires admission of guilt. And admission of guilt makes me culpable. In other words, that means I am blameworthy. And if I am blameworthy, then owning that blame can do nothing more than consign me to the group of the guilty. So where do I go from there? So the best that we can do in a world without God is some kind of system or pathway of guilt avoidance or guilt deflection or guilt absolution or we just have to do our penance. But how much penance is enough, right? How many good deeds do I have to do in order to get out of the the category of guilty and be in the category of the innocent? Is it even possible? And trying may well exhaust you to death. The best we can do is guilt avoidance. Uh, Interesting, I watched my son actually, he's becoming a bit of a history buff, and he encouraged me to watch. He said, Dad, we gotta watch this movie, and I don't know if you've seen it, uh, called, oh boy, here we go. Here's a senior's moment. Called The Finale. Anybody seen The Finale? It's the, it was, it's, uh, it was starring Ben Kingsley. It's the story of Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was uh, probably one of the chief architects of the final solution in Nazi Germany to exterminate, to do away with the Jewish race. Eichmann escaped from Germany after the end of the Second World War, so he was absent from the Nuremberg trials. He escaped to Argentina. But in the 60s, the Mossad, the, the, uh, the Jewish Secret Service, they, they found him. They actually sent in a, a, a team to extract him from Argentina and bring him to trial. You can actually, if you have Netflix, you can actually watch the trial of Adolf Eichmann. And it's fascinating. This, the movie finale was very good, but actually watching the trial itself is, is fascinating because Eichmann, this man who was personally responsible for the extermination of, of hundreds of thousands, he, he sat there stone-faced and he absolved himself of guilt purely on the basis that he was following orders. In fact, he says this, he says, I was one of the many horses pulling the wagon and couldn't escape left or right because of the will of the driver. For him, the driver was Hitler. He had no choice, right? That was his defense. That was his, the psychological mechanism he used to absolve himself of guilt. And of course, this story is as old as time. We go back to the garden, right? Adam and Eve, 
Eve ate. God confronts Adam. What does he say? She made me do it. God confronts Eve. The serpent made me do it. That's all we can appeal to in a world without God. But for the Christian, paradoxically, and uh, Jeremy, thanks for sharing what you shared this morning. I, I thought that was a, f- uh, a very fitting opening to diving into this psalm to talk about confession. Paradoxically, owning our guilt is, for the Christian, the pathway to t- opening the state of blessedness and then followed by the, the converse of unblessedness. Now David then in verse 5, returns to now how we return to blessing if we find ourselves in that state of blessedness where David found himself in multiple occasions. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin, and I did not cover up my iniquity. Incidentally, that's the same word that he uses in the opening for the man, blessed is the man or the woman whose sin God covers the same word. When I stopped covering up my sin and I allowed God to cover up my sin, then I returned to the state, this place of being blessed. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions. And God, you forgave the guilt of my sin. And so then here is David's declaration that his experience of God's forgiveness is cause for all the faithful. See, it's interesting. This psalm, is, it was a communal psalm. It was used for the community of, this, of the faithful in Israel as they worshipped. And David's a character in the psalm, but the people, the worshippers are characters, and so are the priests. And so David's been speaking to this point about his own experience and his own learning and what he's learned to be true about God. And now he's speaking to the people. This is what I've found to be true now for the people. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you, O God, while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters then won't reach them. You, O God, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And now the priests speak. They break in to add their instruction. And they say, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. In other words, the the peace break in, don't be like the wild beasts. Don't be like a dumb, brute beast who has to be driven by, by force in order for the driver to get him to go the direction that he wants him to go in. And for me, this conjures up visions in my mind of the words of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12. My son, my daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. He's actually quoting Proverbs 3.11 in that case. He says, for God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share 
in his holiness. If hardship and trial enter your life, is God, is God punishing you for something? I wouldn't use those words. Could it be that God is using that to discipline you, to, to move you in a direction that otherwise you would not go, to teach you something that otherwise you could not learn? Yes. And is that something we should thank him for? Yes. Because as Paul says in Romans, in all things God works for the good. In all things, God is using all trials and difficulties and challenges. He's using all his disciplines to perfect your faith, to bring you, as, as, the, as, the, the, um, as the writer of Hebrews says, to bring you to the place where you may share in his holiness. So then David then brings it all home. He finishes it off. He basically is saying, I've learned that the path of blessing is found in continually laying my sin bare in the sight of God. For when I keep it from him, his holy hand of discipline is heavy upon me. When I try to explain my sin away or justify my sin or just ignore it altogether, God in his grace puts his hand of discipline upon me and I feel it. And incidentally, if you don't, that's a bigger concern. If you can get away with sin, if you can carry on in sin, if you can commit sin without any conscience, and it really doesn't bother me anymore, that ought to concern you. Because God disciplines those he loves. His hand is heavy on me, even to the point, uh, uh, heavy on my heart and my soul and my mind and even on my body. And, and I, you know what? By experience, I can, I can testify to you that in times where I have persisted in sin, and I have, I'm not standing up here as someone who's got it all together, and I've refused to acknowledge that before the Lord, or sometimes, frankly, I've been afraid to, the burden of guilt, it sucks the joy out of life. It turns life into drudgery. Yeah, I can still go through the daily motions of work and getting things done and watching TV. At the, but there's no joy. The, the joy of salvation is gone. And I wish I would remember more acutely how that feels the next time so that I would be less slow to confess. David says, because freedom from sin's burden is found through repentance. Because God forgives the guilt of my sin. And this brings, to me, this brings many of the assurances of God's word. And this is where having God's word, as, as uh, the psalmist says, God's word hid in our heart in Psalm 119 is the way to keep from sin. Here's God speaking through Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together. He's speaking to Israel. He says, the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll be like wool. And later in Isaiah 43, 25, he says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. What in the world keeps us from repentance? Reasonably, I cannot understand it. It is the most irrational thing. 
Because repentance before God means forgiveness. He remembers our sin no more. He delivers us from it. And all that is left is joy. Of course, then the people, this is David's or uh, explication. But then the people wonder, but how can we be assured of this tool? And the key to that, which is the, the question we're asking, but we're not King David, the man after God's own heart, the man that God specifically anointed, right? The one from whom the Messiah would come. That's David. How can we, how can the regular people, how can we be assured of the same? And this is where that phrase, the voice from the priests come, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. And the key for God's people, and, and it amazes me, this, this, this word unfailing love, it appears certainly in the penitential psalms, but it appears throughout the psalms. Anytime you see words like unfailing love or compassion or mercy, especially in the psalms, it's because the psalmist, the Hebrew writer, the Jew of the Old Testament always has in their mind, they always go back to one event, this moment on Sinai, this moment in their history that they look to and point to, where God comes down to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 34. And Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. Show me what you're like. I need to know who you are before you send me out from here with these crazy people to go into the wilderness to do this impossible mission. I need to know what you're like. And if you remember the story, God comes down and he says, Moses, you can't see me, so I'm going to wedge you into a rock and put my hand over you, but I will let my glory pass by you and I'll declare my name to you. And he does so, and as the glory of God passes Moses, God speaks and declares his name. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. There it is. There's the unfailing love, the chesed, that David points to again in this final verse, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. How can we, how do you know? How many times have you gone back to that sin, that persistent, that, oh, I said I would, and now again, and over and over, will I ever be free from it? What's wrong with me? Can I be free? Can, I, can God forgive me again? What's the basis of your confidence? How do you know you can go back to him? How do you know he'll receive you? How do you know he'll wipe you clean? By appealing over and over and over again to the character and nature of God that he's revealed to you. Don't depend on your, as Jeremy said earlier, your works. Don't depend on your track record. Don't depend on your family name. Don't depend on your church attendance. Don't depend on any of those things. Our basis for confidence, our basis for security and surety and safety, that we can take our sin, as ugly as it is, into God's presence and lay it all out and know that we will receive absolution, forgiveness, that he'll wipe them clean. He remembers them no more. The basis of that assurance is the character, the grace, the mercy, the heart of God. He reveals it to Israel 
through these words, which remain for them a, a, a safeguard. They go back to that again and again. And we can too, except we who are under a new covenant, not like the old covenant people, we're under a better covenant. We have those words, those declarations of the character of God, but now we have even greater God displaying his character, his nature, his person to us. We know who he is. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that he has shone the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, the glory that Moses couldn't see, by the way. He shone the light of the glory, that glory, the glory of God in the face of Christ. We know God's disposition toward us. You know how he will receive you. You know what his heart is toward you already. It's already done. It's already clear in Jesus. He'll receive you. No matter what your sin, no matter what your guilt. So if you're here today and, you know, you have been, maybe you're hiding it. Maybe you're concealing a sin that you hope no one will ever find out about. And I'm not saying you need to stand up today and declare that to the first person you find. But don't hide it from God. Because you can't. Don't, don't rob yourself of, of the freedom and the deliverance and the joy that God delights to give to you. In being free from guilt in knowing that you're righteous in his sight. No, not because you're a good person, but because of Christ, because his son, because what he did for you and that his blood covers it all. And so he gives to you his very righteousness. Don't wait another minute. Even right now while we're finishing service, go into God's presence, go into the throne room of grace and lay it before him. Confess it. Don't make a promise that it'll never happen again because you can't, right? Just appeal to his grace and his mercy. Lay your heart before him. Then, maybe then, have a discussion about, Lord, now, I want to do the hard work now of fleeing from sin, and maybe that will involve finding a trusted brother or sister or a pastor or a leader and confessing saying, I've been guilty of this. I've received God's forgiveness, but I want nothing more to do with it. You see, repentance is turning from sin, not just feeling bad about it. We confess it, we repent, which means we want to do nothing more with it. doesn't mean we'll be perfect, but there's a deliberation in walking away from sin. Then what's the outcome? Where do we end? We end where David ends. So, what are you waiting for? Confess your sin to the Lord. You're going to leave here with a bad feeling? Going to leave here depressed? Oh no, that guy really is a downer? <laughs> it's not just his website. <laughs> no. Leave here rejoicing. This is where David ends. So, the very end of the psalm, so we're left rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous. But I'm not righteous. I'm a sinner. Oh, but through trust in Christ, you've become righteous. 
by laying your sin, your guilt at the foot of the cross and saying, all I have to give you, God, give to me your righteousness. He gives it freely. Now you're righteous. He remembers your sin no more. Sing all you who are upright in heart. You who now, now you can go out in the state of blessedness that Paul be, or David began with. Blessed is the one whose, Lord, whose sin the Lord does not count against him. In Christ, you walk out the door free. No guilt, no more. It's gone. That's the good news. I don't know why it's not better news for our world. I, I go back to it again and again. And it's this, this strange paradox that the more I recognize the depth of my sin, the more in love with Christ I become the more I see his grace and mercy and I just love him. I can't believe it. And the more I rejoice in him, the more, the more I look forward to seeing him, the more I can't wait to, to see his face and have him embrace me, not because I'm a good guy, but because of his great love. So we rejoice. So that's how we ought to end. That's how we ought to end a sermon on repentance is rejoicing. Go out of here celebrating. You don't have to carry your guilt with you anymore. Leave it here. Leave it at the foot of the cross and worship and rejoice in our great God. Let's pray together. Father, you are so wonderful. I pray to you, Father, because your son told us we should pray to you and because you are the one, you're the author of this great salvation. It was your eternal purpose and will to send your son to bleed and die on our behalf. It was out of your great love, O oh God, that you paved the way, that you made forgiveness, deliverance from sin possible. Your love, which birthed your great grace and your mercy, through which we can find freedom, from the guilt of our own sin. Lord, thank you, Lord Jesus, for being that one. Thank you for being our great Savior, for taking the guilt burden of our sin on your own shoulders so that we wouldn't have to bear it. Lord, help, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you help free us? Help us to live in the freedom of the forgiveness you purchased for us. Help us to say no to sin, to, to do, have nothing more to do with it, to cast it off, and Lord, where we stumble and fall, to immediately come back to you and lay it at your feet and say no more. Lord Jesus, forgive us. Help us to carry on in your grace, knowing that before you, we're accepted. We're no longer guilty. We don't have to hang our heads and walk around with our tails between our legs, but to stand up rejoicing that we are in you righteous. Thank you, Jesus, for so great a salvation. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for confirming these things to us through your word and by your direct presence. And I pray you'd help us to live it out. Show it to a, a, a world that where we look around us and we see our friends and our neighbors without Christ in this world, in one way, shape, or form, being crushed under the burden of guilt. And I just pray that you would help us to be effective in declaring the good news of freedom.
through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.